when people think about the future and ubiquitous connectivity, you also have to think about space. So 6G isn't just about the terrestrial networks, it's about space networks too. And that's why you're seeing people like OneWeb and Starlink and all the other stuff firing up as people start to look at that next frontier for, for networking. And that's really the sort of just, that's just the first piece. On today's show, we're exploring the future of the internet, some of the opportunities, challenges and risks. And that is with Joe Bagley, CTO of VMware for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Also on the show, we are joined by our very own Jim Tiller, our CISO, as we talk about World Surveillance Day. Jim's a fellow podcaster, the host of Security Bytes, and adding a little bit more credibility than perhaps myself and Akish can add to the conversation. This is Tech Talks, your weekly technology podcast brought to you by myself, David Savage, and powered by Nash Squared. Today's show has a transatlantic feel. Uh, joining me and Akish is our esteemed colleague and CISO, Jim Tiller. How are you, Jim? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me on. No, it's lovely to have you on. How's the world of podcasting? <laughs> it's new, fresh, interesting, and I'm not very good at it yet. <laughs> uh, that's not true. That's not true. Anyone who's heard an episode of Security Bytes will know that that is not true. <laughs> but we'll, we'll give it a plug. What, what What is the show for anyone who's unsure what we're talking about? The show is about a half hour podcast where we talk about some interesting things that are happening that week in cybersecurity news. And then I bring on a guest where we talk and have a discussion about security from an interesting perspective. I've had some Pretty interesting guests. Uh, one of my next episodes is going to be the former CISO for the CIA, as a matter of fact. So we get to talk about some pretty interesting things. So uh, it's just a conversation about cyber for everybody. Akish, it's basically tech talks, but with people who know what they're talking about. Yeah, and, and people that work for the CIA and security, to be fair. So to, to be honest, to be honest, I bet you they've got some insight into uh, surveillance, right? Um, they, yeah, they've absolutely. probably seen some very, very interesting things over, over the years. Um, so yeah, I don't even. Well, prob probably the kind of stuff they can't tell us. Yeah, about. that's what. That, that, yeah, that, that's that's about. what I was going to say. I mean, having people like that, right? Although their head probably has a lot of invasion. I don't know how much they can actually, uh, you know, actually kind of say. But it should be interesting. Well, hopefully, Jim, you can speak rather freely on this platform today. But yes, it is. It is today. As of the publishing date, the 16th of August is World Surveillance Day. So that's another reason for having you on. We'll come to that a little bit later. But we will line up our interview, which is with Joe Bagley, the CTO for Europe, Middle East and Africa at VMware. And we'll come back with some commentary on it afterwards. And then, as I say, talk a little bit about security and surveillance. Today, I'm joined by Joe Bagley from VMware, someone who's been on the show before. Uh, so if anyone had the opportunity to listen to that show, I think it was probably about a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it must be at least, I reckon, yeah. I, I don't know. I think it was kind of November last year. Yeah, something like that. If it was dark anyway, so yeah, it can't be nearly a year ago, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for, for agreeing to come back and talk to, talking to us again. Um, how are you? I'm well, yeah, very well, in fact. Um, uh, discovered Peloton, discovered eating healthier, and um, yeah, I'm a new man. <laughs> well, that might pop up in the conversation, I, especially given that you're down in Devon at the moment. Have you taken your Peloton with you? No, no, that stays. It's a bit heavy. I've, um, I, the wife contemplated getting another one for down here, but I said that was extravagant. I'll, um, I'll, I'll cope for a few weeks without. I'll be fine. There's, there's some fantastic hills to walk on, so I'll make up for it. The, the physical rather than the virtual. Mm -hmm. um, can you start by telling us what you do for VMware? Yeah, no worries. So. I'm the chief technology officer for Europe, Middle East and Africa. And 
Um, what that means is I'm part of the senior leadership team of the company, and I work generally on our product strategy and the direction of the company in, in general, I suppose, and spend most of my time talking to customers and partners and people like yourself and um, working out what's going on in the world and what's, what's best for our customers next. And last time we had you on, we were talking about explainability in AI. We were talking about AI recognizing tanks or maybe not recognizing <laughs> tanks as is the case. So what's going on in the world of VMware at the moment? You know, those conversations that you're having with your customers, what have they moved on to? Well, there's a couple of areas. I mean, there's the clear one around multi-cloud, which is, you know, our headline story around the fact that this whole everyone's all going to end up in one public cloud is is rapidly becoming accepted as the myth. And what's actually happening is people are keeping some of the stuff they've got on premises and they're distributing their new stuff across multiple clouds based on what's best for them. So that's that's the sort of multi-cloud story and everyone realizing that there's there's challenges and opportunities in in that new world. So really the lead story for us is around that. And then and then the other piece really is about distributed applications and the way that applications are no longer going to be this this picture of pick all my stuff up and go and put it in one big public cloud didn't quite tie up with the fact that whilst we've been moving along with the cloud thing, also applications have changed and they're now more highly distributed. We talked about AI and bits and pieces like that before. There's now a requirement for not everything to be in one place in one data center. Now the components of applications are are highly distributed right down to being in the hands of the user, so to speak. So architectures are changing too. So networks, 5G, 6G, all that kind of stuff is becoming very important as well. So it's about people spreading their, their applications across multiple clouds, but also spreading applications across multiple physical locations rather than just picking it up and putting it one you know somewhere else that idea of not one place not one data center and in the hands of users <clears throat> I, I mean i suppose you yourself are based down in the southwest at the moment it's movement like that or the fact that i'm in the office typically one day a week and that, that we've fallen into these patterns now and they seem fairly fixed i guess that's fueling to this I, it's fueling to it in that I think people are building more around distributed workforce, I think is the answer. And so no longer, you know, the, the cloud concept in itself was was almost that, you know, the, the old days we had a big data center in the office and we all sat there with these computers connected to that data center. Then over time we had one big data center and all the multiple offices connected to it. And then we decided we're going to take that data center and we're going to not run it ourselves because we're not in the business of running data centers. We're going to go and run it in the cloud. And so you know, that's really where the cloud piece came from. But I think that the world of work has become highly, you know, more distributed and was just massively accelerated by the pandemic, to your point. So I think people now have to think much more about people being highly distributed. And that that affects not only how you build applications, but how you do things like security. You know, a lot of the security stance that people have is around, oh, people are all going to be on our network in our office or on our VPN. And, and now that's not the case. People are all over the place on multiple different devices and, and trying to build a security stance around the fact that everyone's in your office plugged physically into your network just isn't a security model that works anymore unless you're you know, an, an air-gapped high-security government organization. So you mentioned um, 6G, right? Yep. It's what comes after five. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> I don't know whether that's around the... I've never seen anything. Maybe it's just my phone. No, I've got a fairly new phone, but I've never seen anything but 4G. Um, and I think it's supposed to be 5G. Oh, I don't know. But I understand that 6G is obviously a topic of conversation right now. I struggle to get 4G. Um, and my brother-in-law is considering moving to getting better working from home access, kind of riffing on that conversation that we were talking about before. Yeah. So what are the opportunities and challenges when we're thinking about the future of the internet? Well, look, so connectivity is the first one, right? And you, you rightly point out that 
even though we don't often get 4G nowadays, and I very rarely see 5G unless I'm on particular motorways or hanging around certain airports. I seem to say, you know, other than that, it's, it's 4G and occasional 3G. So, you know, why are we talking about 5G and potentially 6G? Uh, I think it's because you, we have to understand, we have to plan for ubiquitous network connectivity. It is coming, but I don't think it's going to come in the way that people think. So 6G isn't just about upgrading to, you know, the latest mobile phones and making sure that the networks go to 6G. And the interesting thing about that is that even 5G requires way more cell towers than 4G did. So, you know, it's not like 5G is going to, you know, to, to get from 4G to 5G, we need to put more cell towers up. So something else has to happen. And so 6G, though it will give, you know, terabit connectivity, you know, I mean, unbelievable speeds um, in, in the plans. And we're talking, you know, five, 10 years out or more here into the discussions we're having. I think it's a bit more fundamental than that because we have to understand where this networking is going to sit. Right now, we think about the, you know, the wires that come into our house and then, you know, maybe we get the, the mobile network. And so uh, um, my main house, I've got nice gigabit virgin broadband, but unfortunately that's a bit flaky. So I have a an external modem that's 4G that points at a local 4G mast on three. And when Virgin disappears, it auto fails over to that. So I have some connectivity. So I'm using that. Down here, I'm coming to you thanks to the magic of Starlink, which is via satellites in the sky. So the, the BT connectivity down here is the equivalent of you know a bean can on the end of a piece of wet string, unfortunately. So putting a satellite dish out in the garden or on the, you know, on the side of the cottage and getting hundreds of megabits of connectivity at low latency, I'm talking 25 milliseconds, is, is a big deal. So when people think about the future and ubiquitous connectivity, you also have to think about space. So 6G isn't just about the terrestrial networks, it's about space networks too. And that's why you're seeing people like OneWeb and Starlink and all the other stuff firing up as people start to look at that next frontier for, for networking. And that's really the sort of just, that's just the first piece of what's going on in 6G, because the second big thing about 6G is we'll lose boundaries. So right now, it's very clear the difference between Vodafone and Amazon, for example, right? You know, Amazon's a cloud provider and Vodafone's a network provider. When we get to, even in 5G, those lines are blurring. But when we get to 6G, they'll literally converge. It won't be, you won't be able to tell the difference between a network provider and a cloud provider and, you know, someone who provides the hardware or whatever it is. It's just going to be one big, I don't want to say mess, but one big um, new world of of multiple providers all sort of meshed into one. So, yeah, and that then heads us down to the, the excitement of the democratization of IT, which is something else to discuss. Does that pose some problems for, I don't know, the likes of a Vodafone, where you might kind of have question marks about security? If you're looking at them as kind of a, a cloud provider, it's taken time for organizations to build up that trust that, you know, as we were talking earlier about distributed applications and multi-cloud, that security question surely pops back up if you've got people entering a space that they're not intrinsically kind of associated with. Well, I, you know, Vodafone already is a cloud provider. They're a big public cloud provider. They, you know, with working with our technology, they provide public clouds to, to a lot of businesses, but not to sort of end users as you look at it, I suppose, in that way. Um, I think people have to understand that privacy and security you know, there's all these concerns about privacy and security in the cloud and how do we deal with that? And we've done some research in that area as well about how much people trust um, certain organizations with, with their data. I, you know, the trust is built and earned over time. And so I think that's going to help. It's a good point. As, as people, as these brands start to move into these areas, they're going to have to understand consumer trust is going to be really important to them in, in doing that. And it's surprising how much people will give up without much trust, actually, when you see some of the organizations that have had huge breaches yet still have huge customer bases. So I don't think it's particularly anything in you know one telco or one public cloud is any better or worse than the other, to be honest. I think it's just something that needs to be borne in mind. 
So you said that 6G needs more cell towers and you've got Starlink where you are. Yeah. Is there a case for... I don't know whether this is even possible, so this is a stupid question, forgive me, but just thinking, is there a case for, I don't know, local authorities in regional parts of the country going, hang on a minute, if we want people down here spending money in local shops, taking advantage of from home working, let's get more infrastructure, let's look at 6G as a way of perhaps getting them connectivity so that they can work from home more easily. Completely, and that's exactly already happening with 5G. So we're already seeing local authorities in the UK investing in 5G infrastructure, initially for their own use, you know, for you know their own, whatever their, their council operatives are doing and getting not connectivity in that way. But there's also, we're in talks with some of them, I've seen plans and various other bits and pieces where they're talking about building their own 5G networks because they've got the infrastructure, right? They own the street lamps. They own uh, all the bits of its street furniture that are really handy to put a, a much smaller, but many, many more times um, little antennae all over to start to do that. So we're seeing that more and more in smart cities and things. And you'll see projects all over the UK around smart cities in that context. And and rolling out, um, you know, a non-telco 5G is a big thing there. The interesting piece there actually is, you know, there was a big thinking around people doing private 5G. So someone like a huge car manufacturer would put 5G network in their factory instead of, you know, the next generation of Wi-Fi. That's not really happening because the 5G is still quite expensive to do compared to Wi-Fi. So, again, you know, we look at Wi-Fi 6 and 5G. And so it, it, it's really interesting as to seeing as whether it's going to be a 5G network that you'll get rolled out by your local authority or whether it will be a much more ubiquitous Wi-Fi network that you'll get rolled out by your local authority. But, yeah, there's definitely a play there as well. And, and then they may then be able to sell space over the top of that to telco providers and others. And then on the flip side, the, the telcos and the clouds combining, as I was saying earlier on, if we go back to what we talked about with AI in the previous podcast, um, some of the stuff that's going to be happening at the edge, despite being high-speed connectivity, the latency is still going to be too long to go all the way to some cloud somewhere else. You're going to have to make decisions locally. And so if that decision is not being made on the device that person's got in their hand, they need more compute power closer to them in the network. And so we're seeing the telcos now looking at how close can they push you know, what they call MEC, which is multi-axis edge computing, but basically computers closer and closer and closer right into the cell towers that they can then sell to someone to run their platform on, for example, that could then be used. So gaming is a really good example. Rather than, you know, buying a games console, something like Google Stadia, where you're actually just remote controlling something, there's many more opportunities for that if that if the you know the processing power for that is in the cell tower that's 100 yards from my house, the response is going to be phenomenal compared to the cloud that's, you know, 10,000 kilometers away. Now, I think it's it's only appropriate to ask a question around sustainability because as all of this technology increases, and we're talking about uh, you know um, more distributed applications, I, I you know if we're talking about multi-cloud and more network infrastructure, we're going to be creating more data. The footprint of technology is going to grow, and it's one of those things that people are beginning to switch on to in the last couple of years. Maybe it's not so high on the agenda of many CIOs, although you might tell me differently, but is there pressure to look at supply chains at the moment in light of the costs and the climate prices and how that how is that affecting those organizations that you're talking to? Incredibly so. Look, ESG is sort of, you know, a number one topic that I have with customers. I'm not kidding. You know, I, I work and lead ESG here in EMEA at VMware and we're very proud of all the stuff we've done. But I now get a lot of people come and talk to us specifically around sustainability and, and the broader task, the broader context of, of ESG. But if we look at sustainability in particular, 
I think people are realizing, particularly in data centers, you know, we're not building less data centers, we're building more data centers, right? And so data center efficiency is something that's very close to my heart. I was part of a team at the British Computer Society that founded the um, what became the European Code of Conduct for Data Centers, which was how to build green data centers. And it has become the standard globally for doing that. Because, you know, over 15 years ago, we recognized this was coming. And and now there's a whole host of best practices around building the most efficient data center. And, and there's some really cool stuff you can do in data centers, right? So data centers need cooling and you can build them such that they don't need much cooling at all. I literally just open a window. But we've seen some interesting things where you're doing combined heat and power projects where the data center, the, the, the energy that's being used to cool a data center, you've got to get rid of that heat. Well, we're using that heat to maybe heat a swimming pool for the public baths next door kind of stuff. And I've seen that example as well. So I think we need to think a little bit more integrated around the, the the systems around data centers, and we could do a whole series of podcasts just on that. Um, but when you look at the wider remit of it, actually, if I'm sending, if I'm distributing applications further, if I'm getting some of the stuff to be done nearer and nearer to me, then I'm using less network infrastructure than if everyone was sending it all the way across and back again. So ultimately, in some cases, we're optimizing it as much as possible to run as locally as possible. And then when you look at mobile devices now, the chase around mobile devices is the fact that we literally can't fit much more energy into a mobile phone in terms of a battery right now. So the fight that you're seeing going on on mobile processors with ARM and everyone else is how to get as low power as possible and get as much processing done for as little power as possible, which has been phenomenal for the return in terms of sustainability. So actually, I'm seeing some great advances in the context of sustainability as people try to work out how to do things for as little power as possible, as closest to the point of need, as opposed to just needlessly building huge data centers and sending data backwards and forwards. So I think this distributed nature is probably more exciting for sustainability than less. And it then also enables us to do some really cool stuff like we're doing in in embedding and making more intelligent the power networks and the power networks getting a bit clever about where their power sources are coming from and you know, power is much more complex nowadays than it was when you had a big power station and you just sent it all out. Now I've got, you know, solar panels on houses and air source heat pumps and who knows what else and people pumping stuff. So managing a power grid is way more complex and requires a lot more compute. So putting this compute out there, distributing that compute into the into the um, power network is becoming hugely important as we start to make the most of some of the sustainable energy that we've got out there. It's interesting. It echoes some of the comments of a, of a guest we had a few weeks ago from Envision Racing, Sylvain, who's their CTO and MD. Envision Racing are part of Formula E. And he was talking that the more EVs we have on the road, actually the more that you can use them sitting in people's drives to be part of the network to move power around as you need. So kind of as, as the technology increases, despite kind of the idea that, oh, we've got more and more technology, it's more and more data, it's more and more compute, it's more and more problem, it's actually kind of tackling that issue but it's better so actually at home i've got um tesla power walls i've got two tesla power walls on the side of my house and i've got solar panels and there's an innovative um a tariff now with octopus called the tesla energy plan and all you need for that by the way is solar panel you know solar panels and tesla power walls you don't need a tesla car but what actually i'm doing is i've handed over my batteries to be managed by the grid actually managed by tesla and octopus and what they do is they fill my batteries up either overnight on cheap power or they fill it up with solar power from my roof during the day. And then at 4 p.m., they export everything. So my house supplies my neighbors for two hours or so from 4 to 6 or so 4 to 7 p.m. every evening when it's the high peak, when we're using the worst amount of, you know, when we're the most carbon intensive, when we, all that kind of stuff. 
I'm pumping that back out again locally and supporting the grid and actually balancing the grid. And in return, I get a low, I pay a lower price for my energy and I get paid the same for what I import that I export. And so, you know, these kind of exciting new bits of technology being embedded in the grid, being smart, being managed like that. And that's being managed obviously remotely over the internet to, you know, when it charges, when it doesn't charge, et cetera, starts to get to the point where we can get to a much less carbon intensive grid. And um, yeah, it's really exciting stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to be part of that and what we're doing with at home. So look, last, last quick question. Uh, obviously, you talk to a lot of customers, Joe. Um, we've touched on a lot of different topics. And so this is, <laughs> this is perhaps, perhaps kind of um, uh, slightly clunky. But if you had to pick out one topic that, that most CIOs of enterprise organizations or small, small medium enterprise organizations need to, need to really kind of focus on at the minute, what would be, what would be your thing that you tell them to think about? That's a, that's a tough one because I've really got two. Um, so I'm going to be cheeky and say two. So the first one, is, the first one is, is I would encourage them to do what I call application portfolio planning, to think long-term. Don't think about how you solve your short-term problems with your applications and your infrastructure. Work out where your business is going to be in three to five years and make your technology decisions, what cloud you're putting them in, what SaaS service you're using based on that. I see most of the mistakes is people making short-term cost-saving decisions and not long-term strategic decisions with their IT. So that's number one. And the Second goes to exactly what we've just been talking about. Move sustainability right at the top of your agenda because I'm seeing it in more and more RFIs, RFQs, etc. That um, sustainability, ESG, is becoming highly important. So if you want to form part of complex supply chains up into large projects, you need to be able to prove the sustainability and, more importantly, the wider ESG worth of, of your offering and your business. And if you don't start doing that now, you are going to be left behind. So those are my two. Brilliant. Look, it's been. Fantastic to speak to you again. If someone wanted to pick your brains, Joe Bagley is B-A-G-U-L-E-Y. LinkedIn as good as anywhere? Well, yeah, LinkedIn, actually Twitter, at Joe Bagley, at J-O-E-B-A-G-U-L-E-Y is a good place to come and have a conversation with me as well. I'm I'm happy you'll see I'm tweeting on all these topics and a whole host more. (laughs) Well, look, we won't keep you. Uh, Go and enjoy the weather in your kayak and uh, thank you for your time today. I will do. Thanks very much. It's been great to be on. Okay, uh, future of the internet. Plenty in there. Bit around security as well. Jim, why don't, why don't you kick us off? Was there anything that, that, that jumped out from what Joe was saying? The fact that people are, you know, willing to give up privacy so quickly, the this comments concerning trust and how we, for very little expectations, we actually provide a lot of trust to providers. I thought that was kind of an interesting concept. And I 100% agree with them. I think we're very, we're very much focused on the services we get right? I want to share my photos and I just want to, I don't care if they're out there in the ether somewhere, you know? And uh, so I think it's a very interesting concept and he's dead spot on with that. I thought it was interesting that he said that consumer trust is going to be really important, but it's amazing how much we give up without much trust. And the fact that big, there have been a lot of companies with big breaches that still have big customer bases. Um, And thinking about it, it's never really entered my head to move from a firm because there's been a big breach. I don't know how you feel, Akish, but to be honest, it's difficult to keep up with it sometimes. Yeah, ex- exactly that. I think um, we, we we had this conversation about a year or so ago, I think, or maybe just longer, um, during the pandemic here, I was about to say here in the UK, around the world. Um, but, um, you know, we had that thing when it was all about the track and trace app that we have here in the UK and people were like, oh, I'm not giving up my details. But then they're happy to geotag everywhere they go on Instagram and they're basically showing who they're with where they are what they're doing at you know kind of all hours of the day right and remember we had this conversation here and it was just like you're happy to give your information out on one platform but then 
you know, when it's suddenly it's something a bit more official, so to speak, it's we get a logically and yeah, exactly. Like, oh no, that's my information. I'm not going like it, you know. I've done it before, right? Where you sign up to these things on like your phone, and you no one reads the T's and C's. You just scroll all the way to the bottom. You click accept. I mean, it could have anything. Like, it could be like they've got permission to repossess your house in five years, but. Um, but then you know when you go to a, a like a like a store and then at the end they go oh sir we um we only you know email receipts what's your email address you're like oh why do you need my email address um I've done that before like I've questioned like why do you want this information and then it's just a bit like and I think to myself for a second I'm like Akish you're more than happy to give your information to get you know fifteen pound off your next delivery voucher so <laughs> yeah. like I mean look Jim here's, we're we're two we're two fairly kind of probably average punters here who are kind of au fait with technology but certainly not experts i mean from a CISO community standpoint you know when people are when there's so much misinformation like out there like oh you know don't get the vaccine because 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 bill gates will know exactly where you've been it's like well come on we're all ready with just a phone in our pocket leaving a digital trail of breadcrumbs everywhere because mm. we just click on sites and accept cookies and do whatever else i mean how important is that consumer trust is really is going to be really important i mean it, to to a degree i kind of go is it? Surely CISOs look at that and go, not really. They're all pretty stupid. I, I, I'm sorry to say, but I kind of agree. I think that most people believe that it's not going to happen to them. It's going to happen to somebody else, right? It's not, how am I, how's my information going to be used against me in, in some way, shape or form? And we tend to think in big items, right? I mean, how the human interprets risk is what we're really talking about here, right? Humans will think, you know, people, unfortunately tens of thousands of people die every day on or every year on highways, but we get upset with like when something happens to one particular scenario. So just what we were talking about earlier is my information is everywhere, but I don't like you give you my email address kind of thing. So I think it's really about the interpretation of risk. And as humans, we're just not really good at it. And I think with regards to getting access to discounts or services for free or things of that nature and be able to share certain things with our friends, we sort of accept that level of risk. I don't think, I think we talk a lot about building trust in systems, but as an individual consumer, I don't think that we're really putting that as a huge priority as much as that I think some co companies want us to believe we do. What about this idea that with 6G we'll lose boundaries? I suppose, Akish, again, from your point of view, from my point of view, certainly when I buy a product, I like to know what I'm buying. Is that company an expert in it? This is kind of suggesting, I mean, with the internet... Do you I kind of don't really know exactly who provides what part of it. I mean, I know who my internet provider is, sure, but there's so many different companies now involved in delivering internet to my door. All I know about is when it goes down, I get annoyed and I'm trying to work out who's who's at fault. I mean, again, it's so complex and so unclear. It's difficult to know. I, I suppose it gives it gives it gives um, organisations an opportunity to be a little bit less clear with customers and not worry whether whether or not i suppose they trust you because ultimately it's it's a utility they just need it and we're gonna we're gonna kick off when it goes down but then as soon as it's back on it's all forgotten about yeah i mean i'm to be honest like i don't uh, yeah i don't really i wouldn't be able to tell you where exactly my kind of you know internet is coming from and you know that sort of thing all i know is who i pay at the end of every month and you know i know kind of um who uh, what what kind of internet i need to log into when i have a new device and that's really all i'm concerned with to be honest like i'm not you know I'm, i don't know if it's bad i don't know if it's something that i need to i need to go off this and then do some investigation on i i, I don't know um but i'm i'm very much of the, the you know the, the kind of um 
I guess the avenue of if it's working, then I'm fine with it. And you know, I, th- I think the days are gone. Like where you were. Well, I remember when I was young, my dad always used to be like, "Well, you can't go on the computer at this time because you know viruses." And you know, used to be loading up the old antivirus and things like that. Oh, I don't think I've done that in years, to be honest. Um, you know, then I got told that if you buy an Apple, then they don't get viruses, and then bought a MacBook. And then that was it, really. So, um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, yeah. Right, random question. Do you have antivirus on your mobile? No. No. Yeah, I do. Do you? Yeah. Oh. Well, what sites are you going on, Dave? Maybe you can't say that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Nash Squared. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I use Bulldog on my, on my phone. Maybe because it's Android. I just think that I should. Yeah. I don't no. know. Um, yeah, random. Anyway, I mean, Jim, listening listening to Joe at the end talk about what he thinks technologists should be concerned about, does that kind of tally with the conversations you're having with? And do you reckon that will be something that will please the security community? I think we have to just be very distinctive between the concept of privacy and traditional views of cybersecurity. So when you say cybersecurity, what do you think of? You think of viruses and hacking and hackers and people still in your bank account details and your, and your social information to steal your identity and all these kind of things. When you think of privacy, it's really what we're thinking about is how do I protect my information and the perception that can be made of me or my social network or the people I hang out with or where I am. And where privacy really gets interesting is when you bring physicality into it. So I know where you live. And this is, we were sort of numb to this today because everything has GPS on our phones. We always have it on us. But like he was discussing with regards to 6G, you get edge computing really, really close to where the individual is consuming those services. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, privacy is becoming intertwined with how you're accessing digital environments, making you much easier to identify who you are, what you're doing, what you're buying. Oh, and by the way, where you're at. So that then is now bleeding. These two things of cybersecurity and privacy are bleeding into one another. For example, if you go to various government sites, they'll say, okay, did you take out a loan for this type of car, boat, or vehicle? And you go, oh, yeah, I had that car 15 years ago. And you think, that's great. They obviously know who I am, and, and I can. that's something unique to me. Well, there's been more data stolen than there are humans on the planet. So there have been private records in the billions, right? So it exceeds the all the people on the planet. So that means every individual has had, very likely had their all their data stolen and probably several times. So it's it's kind of this amalgamation of how criminals are using that to get to who you are and what you're doing, as well as our interpretations of the role of privacy in technology. And I think it's where it gets really close to that physicality, where I can begin to identify you and who you're with and what you're doing and what you're buying and, and all these different types of things. Now it's less of a virtual, I'm standoffish. So I think that's why you're seeing a lot of people adopt things like VPNs on their cell phones so they can appear to be coming from a different country or a different part of the world, just to try to obfuscate that a little bit and protect themselves from their providers' peering eyes. So there's definitely a lot of moving parts, absolutely, from a technology perspective. I feel like this is a nice segue into that conversation then about surveillance because <laughs> we were joking before we hit record. World Surveillance Day seems to be a, a celebration where you wave at cameras. If we take it a little bit further than that, um, if there's been that much information stolen, 
surveillance is a necessary evil, right, to keep us safe. Or is it? Because we look at Pegasus and we look at unregulated, abused um, powers. Look, you, you're obviously the expert on this. Akish, I sent you that, that article on Pegasus. Mm. Um, and obviously we've spoken about it on the podcast before. Just as a just as a kind of hot take, what's your feeling on surveillance? Good, bad? Um, it, it, it's good because I think it's needed. Uh, it, it's it's like anything, right? If you leave it, any group of people or, or whatever, right? Like something wrong will happen, and I think it's important um, to have surveillance. Do I think sometimes? Um, do, do I think sometimes it's overboard? Yes. I mean, I, I read something, funnily enough, I read something last week. It was about the the, the Football World Cup um, in Qatar, or soccer for, for Jim. Um, and it was, I think they said something like there's 16,000 cameras in each stadium, and they've got like this new cutting edge, like facial technology, and, you know, basically like everyone will be facially recognized um, on a daily basis and this sort of stuff. And it was like, you know, is it right? Is it wrong? I'm of the thinking that if you're going to an event, any event, it could be a, you know, a sports game, a, a concert on the tube, whatever, then you're putting yourself out there, right? In the same way when people get like, oh, you know, I don't want my pictures going anywhere, but you're posting them on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, it's like it's fine right like i mean i don't really care to be honest okay so here's the question jim listening to that that level of compliance and i would largely be in the same camp as a quiche but that level of compliance is it worrying is that what people behind pegasus want <laughs> and myself and a quiche should be going actually we're not fine we should <laughs> so the, the so First of all, one of the things that you understand is computers are really good at processing images, much better than any other type of data, really, to be honest with you. So when you think of surveillance, you think of it's creating images that you can do a lot of crazy things with, such as, you know, facial identity, which is super, super easy now, and among other things. So there's this sort of security person in me that doesn't like the idea of my body being digitized into a mobile fingerprint of who I am. And, I, and if you have enough cameras on you, um, any camera in the world that I can have access to, I can ask it, say, Hey, have you seen Jim? So now it brings back that locality again and who you are. I mean, I remember even these kind of conversations in the early days of facial recognition for authentication access and reading your iris and your eyes and things of that nature and facial structures. And then it was like, well, wait a second. You could tell if somebody has a particular medical condition, like a woman is pregnant before even they know. So it, it gets a little bit strange from a surveillance piece of it. Now, that's the extreme side of it. I think there are certain aspects of surveillance that I think are really important. Obviously, security from a from a from a large group perspective. Uh, you know, I, I think we were talking about earlier was the uh, UK has the highest ratio of cameras to citizens, for example, it's one to every 13 people, one camera for every 13 people, as an example. And I, I think they're really good from kind of almost a post-mortem or in certain developing emergencies. So you can respond to those types of things. I always tell people um, home security surveillance is I highly recommend that because it's kind of like CCTV for your own home and your own family. But I think is, you know, if I put my tin hat on for a second <laughs> and say, do I really want to have everything about me videotaped from every angle and uh, and knowing what is possible with computers? It does get a little squirrely. However, it's going to be easier to find out if you've got a doppelganger. Yeah, this is true. 
<laughs> that is true. That is true. But also at the same time, to go back to Jim's point, right? So these yeah. cameras sometimes they will also help solve things. Like I'm I'm just thinking very quickly. So uh our UK kind of listeners will know um what happened to Sarah Everard, who is obviously a young female mm-hmm. that went missing and, and that sort of thing in London. And I think the the person obviously responsible for a murder was first spotted on a ring doorbell camera yeah right so again going back on jim's point like home security yes like i've got a ring doorbell um and um you know things like that are obviously good but you you know that's when surveillance is good right and 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 can catch things when people are you know when there's a killer on the loose or or whatever so yeah i don't know maybe me and you play into the hands of pegasus dave to be fair um I mean, yeah, on a serious point, the flip side of this, obviously, will, we'll, you know, Amnesty International will point out, you know, grievous human mm. rights abuses because it's unchecked when it comes to, you know, uh, Jamal Khashoggi in um, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, there was an article a few weeks ago in the, in the Guardian that talks about a prominent Mexican journalist whose child was targeted. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, there is an element of this that's concerning because it is open to abuse. It is unregulated. Mm. There's inadequate judicial safeguards there's no oversight and you know the article talks very much about there must be more done to highlight um existing regulatory and legal systems that that are not fit for purpose but it's that question of okay what it talks about you know the inability to self-regulate well that's a that's a microcosm of, of technology as a whole and we haven't got to grips with that so i mean what what, what are the steps jim it can't simply surely be highlight the risks. There must be some stuff that we can do that can try and address some of the concerns whilst obviously allowing to give, you know, allowing for that safety net that that people are looking for. So I think this brings up an interesting topic is Pegasus has raised awareness of the the reality of essentially, excuse me, military grade cyber weapons available to anybody who can essentially afford them. So Pegasus is essentially a third-party manufacturer of the software. And while they say vehemently they only sell to governments, it does fall into the hands of certain groups, whether it be terrorist groups or certain politically motivated organizations that then can implement the software in a highly targeted way and all that that implies. So I think what we're talking about is some uh, situation almost like you know nuclear proliferation. Um, is we're dealing with something that the, the sort of horse is bolted from the barn. You know, the cat's out of the bag, pick your saying. Um, it's actually been a problem for a while. If you go back many, many years, there and tools that are still obtainable today, like Zeus, and it's called something else now. These are banking hacking application app, uh, app hacker tools that are incredibly powerful. And if you can afford to buy the tool, it can actually create a lot of money. And we're seeing these tools come up that have been historically shall we say, package for the quote-unquote hacker community. But with the advent of essentially cyber war, which has been developing over the last decade, now you have organizations that have this huge ability to create massive weaponry that was being sold to, say, maybe potentially, let's just say, organizations that had, I'll say, legit or control purpose. Now it's been kind of leaked out and become a commercial item. And there's other ones out there just like Pegasus that are doing very, very similar things. The sad part is, is this one's very surveillance oriented. And so there's no ethics, there's no boundaries, and there's frankly no global law that's going to stitch together something that's going to make this more resistant. So 
unfortunately, it kind of falls on the shoulders of almost like Apple and Android and Microsoft to be able to make systems more more resistant to the types of exploit the exploitations that are occurring within these devices that allow them to take so much control. So we have to sort of find ways of hardening our computing environment to make it more and more difficult for these things to exist. Looking at, at, at the time, that probably brings us to the close for today's show. Jim, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing some some expertise, as we said, and some, some knowledge around that. Uh, I celebrate Global Surveillance Day, or World Surveillance Day, rather, um, in, in a very educated way maybe don't wave at cameras Akish you do the same maybe by going to football yeah cheers although don't actually the minute you're no you're a Man United fan don't uh, you? Yeah, let, yeah let's skip over that bit thank you <laughs> Ed, edit that out cheers yeah <laughs> <laughs> thanks both for your time <laughs>